Father, that's the good news we've been singing. To you, remind ourselves, we don't have to earn our own way. You have mercifully, graciously provided your son as more than an example. You've provided him as a substitute to trade lives with us so that instead of our guilt, we may have his righteousness. Instead of his shame, we would have, Lord, his, his goodness, his purity, his holiness. Thank you, Jesus, for not only giving life, thank you for being our life. Help us to honor you as we look back into Scripture a thousand years before you were born and see in it the good early notes of grace that told of your coming. Thank you. Lord, you know how easy it is for me to be self-conscious. Grant me the, the grace to be more conscious of you than I am of myself so that we may all worship you and praise you as you deserve. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Good morning. How are you? Thank you for coming in this terrible storm. It's, uh, it's very... It's very meaningful. You know we're the laughing stock for the rest of the nation, right? I know because friends in the Midwest and back east are, are sending me. We were trending on Twitter. In Chicago, it got down to minus 60 wind chill, and Los Angeles rain was trending. which leads friends of mine to say things to me that no friend should say, much less Christian friends should never say to each other. It's okay, I take selfies from the beach with uh, the quiet, hopeful wish that they could join me, and that's probably what starts all the trouble. <laughs> Have you talked to yourself this week? All the time, right? Self-talk, it's constant. One wise man said, be careful what you say to yourself because nobody talks to you more than you do. And it's true. You've got an internal voice running through your life, and if you're not very careful, it will be self-accusatory. It'll make you feel hopeless. You will say things to yourself that no one who loves you, and probably even the worst of your enemies, if you have such, would never say about you. We have an internal dialogue for most people, self-accusatory, filled with fear, filled with hopelessness all the time. I probably became aware of that, just how pervasive that is way back in the college days. I started competing at the uh, request of a professor, or the encouragement rather, in various things that involved reading, something called oral interpretation, where you read a text, give little speeches. And you wouldn't think that if you're speaking to a public, much less if you're speaking to a jury, that you could have self-talk even then, but I discovered that I could. Self-talk like this, this isn't going very well, you're bombing. The jury hates you. Why are you doing this? Oh yes, the girl. Do you realize how many things you do in your life just because of the girl? <laughs> if you continue doing it this poorly, this isn't going to help your standing in her estimation. You should quit now. All of this self-talk while words are continuing to come out of my mouth. It's a really jarring experience. Maybe you've had it where you're talking to others and thinking about yourself and beating yourself up. Anybody else? Am I the only one? Do I need help? 
The answer always is yes, it takes a village uh, for sure, at least when it comes to me, but maybe you've had the experience. That's why the Psalms, and so many of them are so comforting to me, because they are filled with self-talk, David in particular. Let me remind you who David is. David is the king of Israel, remembered in both art and history as the greatest of Israel's kings. Scripture, himself, scripture itself says of David that in him God found a man after God's own heart. And David is going to come literally from the sheepfolds to rule over God's people. And one of the claims of Jesus and his claim to actual true royalty in the Son of God in the fulfillment of all the promises that the Old Testament makes, the Hebrew Scriptures make, Jesus is going to be referred to as the Son of David. That's David. He wrote half the Psalms that are in your Bible, and it's absolutely extraordinary to see him as a king in an ancient world under continuous pressure. Once he became king, he knew that people wanted him dead every day. He knew that there was intrigue inside and outside the kingdom. He knew that his life, as so many kings did in that day, end in violence inside his fortress or outside of it in battle. So David had a lot of reasons to have self-talk. That's why I was so encouraged many years ago to find Psalm 103. Look there with me, please. It's a long psalm. It's 22 verses long. One verse for every letter of the Hebrew of the Hebrew alphabet, in fact. And in Psalm 103, you can hear David's self-talk. And David's self-talk is very instructive to us. Psalm 103, verse 1, says this, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Do you see how he's talking to himself? It's literary, it's poetic, but David is talking to himself in verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul. In other words, David, remember. And his self-talk is, unlike mine so often, his self-talk is vertical. He's thinking of God eventually, not himself. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. What's David saying to himself? He's saying this, do not forget to praise the Lord. Have you praised Him yet this morning, if you know Him? I don't presume that all of you who are here actually believe that there is a God who listens. I'm here to tell you that there is, that He made you, that He loves you, that He cares deeply about you. In fact, that He knows you far better than you know yourself, that He hears your internal dialogue and everything else you've ever said or done or thought. He knows it perfectly because He made you. And as David is going to tell us later in this psalm, He rules over everything, including you, whether you acknowledge Him or not. He's that real, He's that close, He's that personal. But it's hard sometimes to remember to praise Him 
when you're so concerned, especially when you're burdened with yourself. And that's what David is saying in the first two verses. It's hard to say what is going on in David's life. Sometimes the Psalms give us in the title the exact occasion of David's writing. And so many times it's because David is in trouble. There's no way to know for sure when David wrote this, but as you see this long psalm unfold, it's hard for me to think anything other that this is David as an older man, chastened, humbled, with some scars and some disappointments on him, reflecting back over a long and frankly checkered life, filled with peaks but also with tremendous failures, having led Israel literally in worship that God used him to write in the Psalms, but also having profaned his God, slept with one of his special operation soldiers' wives and murdered the man to cover the treachery. I can't say for sure, but this to me sounds like the Psalms, the musings, the remembrances and the self-talk of an old man toward the end of his life, reminding himself again, David, do not forget to praise the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits because pressure, disappointment, failure, the pursuit of others against you will make you forget the goodness of God. Have you noticed? It's hard to remember to praise the Lord. That's why David is talking himself into it and talking himself through it. I tried to do it this morning. See, there's, there's not one person in the world who's not a hypocrite, including me. But I want to live a life before the Lord and before you in this little community we have here that's honest, not perfect, but has integrity. So this morning, remembering what the psalm was, I did my routine, which I'm encouraging you to do as well, to meet with God in a Bible before you look at a screen. How'd you do with that, by the way? Did you check your email? Did you get to social media before you got to your Bible? If you did, tomorrow's a new day. That wasn't good for you, what you did, okay? It just wasn't. No shame, no guilt. I'm just telling you, that wasn't good for you. It wasn't the best way to start. Tomorrow's a new day, and you've got all of today. You're aware of this, right? <laughs> you've got a whole wonderful day ahead of you. As the Bible says elsewhere, this is the day that the Lord has made. We will be glad and we'll rejoice in it. We woke up, and there's a God above us. So this morning, to guard against hypocrisy on at least that count, I tried to meet with the Lord. And I noticed something in Psalm 103. There's not a single petition in it. It's 22 verses, and it's all praise. David calls God by his personal name. The translators didn't leave it there, but Lord in all caps in your Bible is the personal name of God, transliterated roughly as Yahweh. In other words, David is speaking not to a concept, he's speaking to a God who is there, who is a person, eternal but personal, with mind, will, emotions, plans, who interacts with the people he made. And David says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and do not forget all his benefits. David, do not forget. 
God is good and He has done a great deal for you. Do not forget it. So this morning, I tried to follow that pattern. And here, a few minutes later, I realized how I got off the path. I started praising God in the middle of that praise of pure gratitude, as Psalm 103 shows me, I started asking God for things, and that's okay, because all through Scripture you're told your heavenly Father loves you, ask Him for things, ask Him boldly, ask Him confidently, come in the name of His Son Jesus and speak to Him as a child would to a father. He loves you, ask Him. But I didn't even follow the example of Psalm 103 for more than a minute. I went from telling God and praising Him for His goodness to asking things for myself, and then guess what I did? I started thinking about the problems I was putting before Him in request, and I stopped asking Him for things and started doing something with those problems. What did I start to do? I started to worry about them and work on them and imagine what that person would say and what I would say in return. And envision a whole dialogue where they say something, and I've been waiting, man. I thought about this on Sunday morning, and here we are on Thursday afternoon. Boom, watch this. I win. And all of this is happening with an open Bible and a cup of coffee, and I realized to myself all I wanted to do was praise the Lord. And I couldn't. Not for long. Because... We have to tell ourselves, bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Here, David starts to remember those benefits, and they cover all of life. The Lord, Yahweh, the God you know by name, is the one who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. All of life is there. The forgiveness of sin, the healing from disease, the rescue from the pit. Maybe you've experienced life recently as a pit. Not literally, hopefully. That would be a felony, I'm pretty sure, if someone put you in it. But we often experience life as a pit. We're literally, or metaphorically rather, down. We're trapped. We can't scramble and climb our way up. David says, God is the one, the Lord, Yahweh is the one who redeems your life from the pit and who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Again, this is all poetry, and it's meant to work through images. Imagine the Lord God of the universe not only giving you love and mercy, but crowning you with it. You see how much better that is? The likes of me crowned by the God of the universe? I don't deserve that. Neither do you. Candidly, you don't deserve for God to do one more thing for you. And David already told you the reason why. There are iniquities. There is sin between you and a holy God. The the greatest religious mistake in the world's thinking is that God grades on some kind of curve and that he'll just compare the entire population of people who have ever lived and draw a line somewhere of those who were pretty good. 
And all religion invites you to do is make yourself better so that you can somehow get past that line and nobody will really tell you where the line is except your conscience, which will continually tell you that you haven't done enough and your conscience is right. It was given to you by God to point back toward the true standard. It's not a curve, it's perfection. You can't have true fellowship. You can't have true communion with someone who is holy and perfectly pure. His eyes, Scripture says elsewhere, cannot look on sin. We all get along with each other because we're all alike. But even we draw lines, right? There's some kinds of people you just don't want to be around. They creep you out. I know from the experience, not as a resident, but as a frequent visitor, that there's a moral code even inside prison. And there are certain kinds of crimes that hardened felons look down upon. Why is that? Because the human conscience points to straight back to God and His holiness. And the very first blessing that David remembers is the God who is there is the one who forgives all your iniquities. And having done that, he does more. He not only forgives all your iniquity, he also heals your disease. He also rescues you or redeems you from the pit. And having done that, he crowns you as if you were royalty with steadfast love and mercy. My goodness, no wonder David is talking to himself and saying, don't forget, don't forget, don't forget. David, if you know what's good for you, if you know what's right, if you know what's sensible, do not forget to praise the Lord. He even satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. This is one of the reasons I think David wrote this as an old man, because young men don't often think of renewal. They're invincible. They're bulletproof. What's David thinking about? Hard to say. It's poetry. But he was an outdoorsman. He was a man who was accustomed to defending a little group of innocent harmless, defenseless sheep against predators. He might have noticed an eagle molting, in other words, renewing its feathers, growing new feathers, and changing from a tired appearance to a fresh and new one. And David thought of his long life with God and said, my God is like that. He renews my youth like an eagle's. What's David saying here? He is sufficient for all of your needs. That's the first thing that David reminds himself of. The God who he praises is sufficient for every one of his needs. Verse 6, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who were oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I don't know if you noticed, the circle just got a little bit bigger because David was only thinking about himself and talking to himself. Who has come to his mind now? Do you see the other name? Moses. David is literally quoting a section of Exodus where God is beginning to deal with the people who he has chosen for his own purposes, nothing wonderful in them. He's just adopted them. He's just brought them into his family because he's that good, and from this nation, through no merit of their own, he is going to bring the Savior, Jesus. And David is remembering that God not only deals with individuals, he actually has created a community of God's people. 
And that centuries later, after God began to deal with the likes of Abraham and after him, Moses, now David is their king and he has promised wonderful things to them. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who were oppressed. Israel was once oppressed. For four centuries, they were under the heavy yoke of the greatest superpower known to the world until that time of Egypt. A time in history so spectacular that we keep making movies and cartoons about it. Whether cartoons or Charlton Heston or is your particular taste. That slice of history is so spectacular that people keep thinking about it. Who was oppressed? Israel. But God, the personal God, made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. Number one Bible reading tip, slow down. What's the point of verse 7? It's not just a historical footnote. David is saying, David, do not forget to praise the Lord who creates community and who you can know and you can love and you can speak to and you can cry out to and you can ask for things. And today you should praise because he actually showed up and made a move toward us. We know him because he chose for us to know him. See, The gospel, this good news that I'm trying to share with you from the Old Testament has so permeated Western culture, and particularly the United States, that you practically take it for granted. Most Americans take it for granted that they can talk to God and someone is listening. Wouldn't you say that's true? Have you ever had, I mean, your hardcore secular friends say, I'm having all these troubles so I've been praying? And you kind of look at them like you're praying. Really? You're praying? It's the most natural thing in the world. People pray. There's an old saying, there's no atheist in foxholes, right? I'm sure somewhere there is. But the saying means that people impulsively, naturally reach up to God in times of trouble. Where did that idea come from? From the scripture I'm reading to you and many others that say there is a God who not only exists, he's not like a watchmaker who makes the universe, winds it up and walks away to let itself wind itself down and slowly degenerate into chaos until it breaks. No, there is a God who speaks for the oppressed. If you have a heart for the oppressed, if you yearn for justice, know this. Whether you do that for a living or you want that for your own life, know this. It is only because you are made in the image of God who acts for the oppressed and who makes himself known to ordinary people so that he can bring them into relationship with him. This is the kind of God... Verse 8, who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's straight out of the book of Exodus. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. What is David telling you in these verses? He's saying, David... God is sufficient for all of your needs individually, and also you are in relationship with God and His people. You are not alone in the universe with God. You are in a family, and that's what this is. That's what the local church is. It is an expression, one local individual expression on an ordinary street corner 
of the family of God. Because God not only brings you, please understand this if you're following Jesus, God has not only brought you into relationship with Himself, He has also brought you into relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And it matters. And it's all the way through the Bible. First in Israel, later in the local church of Jesus, but it's always God working to bring people into individual relationship with Himself and doing for them spectacular things forgiving their sin, healing their disease, redeeming their life from destruction, giving them new strength and blessing them and crowning them with His love and with His mercy. But it's not you alone. It's not just you. It's us. And if I could say this just really clearly, I'm not trying to be offensive. I'm just trying to be practical. One of the first things forgotten in our reinvention of the Christian life in the United States is that this is not a matter of me, it's a matter of we. The sense of community, that you don't come to church as a consumer, but as part of a family, as part of the people of God, as part of His flock, as part of His household. These are all biblical images. And you belong not only to the Lord, we belong to each other because we are in relationship with Him. That's the first thing that Americans tend to forget in my experience. And remember, I grew up out of the United States. I've seen it done other ways. And I can tell you, we should not be as fiercely individualistic as we are. We should be seeking communion with our God and communion with one another because He loves us equally as brothers and sisters, and there will come a time in your life, if it hasn't come already, where you will need someone else in obedience to Jesus to bear your burdens with you. Has it happened to you? Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, Paul writes in Galatians. That thread of community is sorely lacking in the United States. Nineteen years ago, a distinguished professor from Harvard wrote a book called Bowling Alone. Think of the title. Because there's nothing more communal than bowling. It's a miserable game, for one thing. It's better if it's experienced. It's better if it's experienced in the company of others because suffering shared is suffering divided. But Putman from Harvard, Professor Putman from Harvard, noticed 19 years ago when he published his books, Americans were increasingly bowling alone. And he said our social capital, in other words, our sense of community, the benefits we get from simple things like watching each other's homes in a neighborhood are rapidly eroding. That was 19 years ago. What do you think has happened since 2000? Think we're doing better or worse? And isn't it funny that social media, so-called, is probably the greatest thing destroying social capital? Why am I telling you all this? That's not a rabbit trail. I'm pointing to you to a biblical path of community. The people in this community who are genuinely growing in likeness of Christ, who are experiencing God's favor, who are experiencing His comfort, without exception, are not only in communion with Him, they're in communion with others. If you wonder, and I don't have enough intelligence or resources to do it as well as I would like, but if you wonder why I chase you, it's not because I'm a stalker. I want you to bring you into community. I want you to experience friendship and not for me alone. I, I literally can't do it. 
just one dude and not a particularly great one. Uh, there's too many of you now. I want you to have community. I want you to have the experience of the Lord that David knew a thousand years before Jesus when he said in verse 7, God made his known his ways to Moses and his acts to the people of Israel, to an entire community. And look how good he is. Here are David's reasons to praise God before we're finished. Verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. Maybe David is starting to feel it. Maybe it's starting to hurt when he gets out of bed. Maybe he's thinking wistfully of that young man who could pursue a predator and kill him. Maybe he remembers the energy in his arms and legs when he stood before Goliath. But he knows that man is gone. As for man, his days are like, like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone. You say, well, that's kind of a downer in the middle of an otherwise great psalm. And you're right. That is a downer, and that's real. But what's the point? The point is in the very next verse. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him and His righteousness to children's children. In other words, David says, I'm fading, but your love, your faithfulness, your loyalty to me never will. And though I could be gone tomorrow, I know if I stay close to you and pass my relationship with you on to those coming behind me, you'll bless not only my children, you'll bless my grandchildren. Why? Because God operates in community, and the first reason we have to praise God is what is woven through every verse that I've just read to you. God is merciful. Verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious. Any better? There we are. Okay. Still with me? All right. I will now quote a friend. Why must there always be a problem? <laughs> All the more reason to be reminded of what verse 8 says. The Lord is, what is it? Merciful. You understand how good mercy is? How rare it is? See, Christians always sing and talk about grace, and for good reason. We have a hymn. My favorite, maybe we'll sing it, Amazing Grace. Grace and mercy are often confused. They're not the same thing. They're two sides of God's loyal love to you. Grace is giving you something that you don't deserve. Grace is kindness, riches, resources, goodness extended to you that you have not earned. 
Mercy is the flip side. Mercy is love and loyalty expressed to you by sparing you from what you do deserve. And there's a difference. Which do I need? Both. A while back, I was pulled over by one of Huntington Beach's finest. And he said, and I quote, you make it too easy. And we laughed. And then, purely out of kindness, he let me go. And I said, sir, are you sure we both know I was wrong? You got me dead to rights. I said, I don't deserve it. He said, you're absolutely right. You know who else did something for you that you didn't deserve? <laughs> and I said, yeah. Are you talking about Jesus? He said, that's right. Jesus loves you. And I said, well, you know what? He loves you too. And we had a little tiny revival meeting there in the, <laughs> there off of Edinger. Now, those of you in law enforcement know for the motor cop to let you go, rare. Their mercy is specially removed during training. That's mercy. I deserved a ticket. I earned it. He spared me. In a much greater way, David says of the Lord, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. That's merciful. God is merciful and he is also forgiving. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. It's all poetry, but it's articulate, intelligent, accurate poetry. Look at verse 12. God, David says that what the Lord does for us in mercy and forgiveness is remove our transgressions, meaning when we violate his law, when God sets a boundary and we run past it, that's what it means to transgress. God takes that and separates that transgression, that sin. He puts it as far from us as the east is from the west. And years ago, I mused and thought to myself, why east and west rather than north and south? Can you see it yet? If you start traveling north, you start driving or flying north, there will come a point where you will have to stop because you can't go north any longer. Because if you keep going north, what's going to happen? You're going to start going south. David said, your sins, your transgressions are removed from you forever. Infinitely. They will never meet with you again. Why? Because God is not only merciful, God is also forgiving. His steadfast love never ceases. Here's how good his love toward us is. Verse 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And maybe your dad was a hot mess. And maybe your relationship with him is broken. And maybe the images of fatherhood for you are rough. Maybe even violent. This is the father you always wanted. 
This is a father who sees his little children struggling and does not scorn them, does not belittle them. He has, David says, he has compassion on them. Because our days are like grass, we're like flowers in the field. The wind can pass over us quickly and we're gone. But verse 17, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. And why? Because you're in relationship. This word steadfast is the English translator's best effort to give you a very important word. It's chesed in Hebrew. At the risk of being a little geeky, and I'm not anywhere near anything like a Hebrew scholar or even student, but the word chesed, this is the best effort, steadfast love, is kindness and loyalty and goodness and mercy and also a steadfast determination to give you all of those good things wrapped up in one glorious word. There's not much like it in English. It means that all of God's goodness is relentlessly, relentlessly persistently, doggedly yours and for you. Not because you've earned it, but because he himself is that good. Which is why David said at the very beginning, David, don't forget to praise him. Because he has done all of these good things for you. And then he concludes the poem by really expanding the circle. Look at verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. This is poetry, but I want you to remember where we started. How small was the circle when David started talking? One guy saying, don't forget, don't forget, don't forget. David, you have a good God. You know him by name. He knows you too. He loves you. He's merciful to you. He forgives your sins. The days of your darkness are now separated from you. They're as far as the east is from the west. You'll never see them again. God has put them far from you. His love and faithfulness to you goes as high as the heavens. It just extends out into infinite space. It's literally limitless, his goodness towards you. Don't forget, David. And now David is... Having thought of himself, he remembered also that he's a king and he is a member of a community because God in his goodness does not only save individuals, he brings us together. And then he says, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. You think that would have been comforting to an ancient king? David says, I'm in charge of this little group. But I'm in relationship with the great king who's in charge of how much? All of it. In other words, he is sovereign over his creation. See, again, if I could describe our own little prison of disobedience away from God, that's what one of my professors called it. He said every culture is a prison of disobedience. And the American prison is the sovereignty of the individual. I am the captain of my soul, said Timothy McVeigh before they executed him. We take a biblical value and virtue of, of responsibility for self and extend it to sovereignty of self. Let me give you a biblical reminder. You're not in charge. You never have been. You have responsibilities towards your God and toward people around you, but you are not in charge because you are not your own. 
You had a beginning on this earth and you will have an end. That's why David muses on a flower in the field quickly dying. Sprouting in the morning being beautiful at 11 o'clock and dead by 6 o'clock in the afternoon. Life is fragile. Life goes quickly. Where do we find comfort? Where do we find mercy in it? In that, we are in relationship with the God who is in charge of absolutely everything. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens. His kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts. His ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord all his works in all places of his dominion. What's David doing now? It's poetry, but what's he doing? He's calling the entire universe to start praising God the way David is. Do you see that? One troubled king started talking to himself saying, David, don't forget. And before it was over, God has relieved his burdens has reminded him of all of his blessings, the mercy, the forgiveness, the steadfast love, and God has ultimately drawn David's mind to the fact that God is sovereign and in charge of everything. So David says at the end, bless the Lord, O my soul. This psalm is an envelope. It wraps up all of life. It ends where it started, reminding you to do something important, that your God is worthy of all praise. Let me give you some very practical ideas of how to put this into practice. First of all, set some time aside daily, early and throughout the day, to do better than I did what I failed to do this morning, and just praise the Lord. Be grateful. You have a great deal to be grateful for, but if you're not consciously, actively grateful, you'll forget give you a for instance. I've been blessed to this point my entire life with amazing good health. And I'm so used to it that on those rare occasions where there's the smallest blip, I say, now what's this all about? This is nonsense. My head shouldn't hurt. Well, why shouldn't it? My mother's hurt, head has hurt terribly since I was 13 years old. Why shouldn't it hurt? nothing in me that gives me good health. Why have I received it? Because God is merciful and faithful and good. I have a family. I have you. We have each other. I don't know if you know this, I really love you. And I feel the love coming back from you even when that love is phrased through correction. Or did you happen to know that you're blowing it in this particular way? Thank you. Every day, set aside time. Before you ask God for things, set aside time to praise him. I discovered this morning how hard that is for me to remember to praise him before I even start petitions because I so quickly fall into asking and forget about praising. Tell him what you're grateful for. Secondly, do what David has done here. Tell others what you're grateful for. I said a moment ago, and it's not my quote, it belongs to a guy named Colonel Dave Grossman. Suffering shared is divided. Joy shared is multiplied. Have you noticed? That's why people go to football games. 
It is. That's why people who care to watch the game want to watch it with somebody else. Why? Because joy shared is multiplied. 70,000 strangers, 100,000 strangers will go absolutely ape. And men who cringe at the touch of another man will hug. <laughs> Absolute strangers. When a well-paid stranger, a multimillionaire, frankly, just with better genetics than either one of them, takes a small leather ball into a certain section of grass in the stadium, 100,000 people go crazy. People kiss, hug, high-five, slam beers together. They didn't mean to do that, but they do because they're so overjoyed. Why? Because joy is multiplied. If God is blessing you, if God is favoring you, if you've experienced God's steadfast love, tell somebody else about it. Don't keep it to yourself. David didn't. Which is why of all the psalms of praise, this may be the most beloved of all. And help others, finally by asking them occasionally what they're grateful for, especially if it's a time of anxiety and difficulty. Help them step out of themselves and reorient themselves toward their faithful God by saying, listen, I hear all those troubles and I, I want to bear them with you. Could I ask you, are you grateful for anything? And we will discover that the ancient wisdom of the Bible that is only now being validated by research by serious science, we will discover that praise is good for us. And not only good for us, it's right. Cross point. This is a thousand years before Jesus, but God ultimately showed his mercy and his steadfast love, not only by dealing with the ancient people of Israel, but by sending his son Jesus on the cross to die for actual, literal sins and sinners. So that as we close this service and we move to prayer, you can speak to him in the name of his son and your father who remembers that you are frail, that your frame is like dust, that you're like a little helpless flower in the middle of a field awaiting a hot day to end you. Your father will remember all that and love you in your frailty and listen to you as if you were the only person in the universe. And he will bear your burdens, not only with you, but bear your burdens for you and love you in a way that you will never completely experience on this earth. And the ultimate goodness is that someday, according to Jesus, he will take you to a home that he has prepared for you. And if you don't have that certainty, my sincere plea to you from one person to another is that you would turn from your sin and trust Jesus as your Savior this morning. And once you begin to walk with the Lord, that you will not forget to praise him. Let's pray. Let's pray and let's practice, shall we? This may be uncomfortable for some, but the effort is well worth it. Based on what you've just heard, if you've learned something, if you've been helped toward praise, do it now. We stay with David.
Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Father, receive this song and this giving. We can praise you with words. We can praise you with songs. We can praise you through generous giving, through acts of service. We should do all of those things. Bless us now, Lord, as we bless you. In Jesus' name.